And I would ask you to have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 18, which you probably do, and then turn and mark 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. And if I might make a suggestion to you there, to put your bulletin there with the confession from Psalm 51. This will just make it a little easier for us as we go through the text, because we're going to refer to that. So if you would just put your bulletin in 2 Samuel 23, we'll get to that in a moment. For the next two weeks, I want to talk about forgiveness. And this week, I want to zero in on the motive for forgiveness. And next week, talk more practically. How do we practice forgiveness? And this morning, as I was going through my sermon, I just deleted a page. Not accidentally, I just, it was kind of confusing to me, and I thought, look, it's confusing to me. It's really going to be confusing to you. I want to zero in on just a few concepts so that you really are able to take away something that has real help. And the first thing we want to talk about is our motive. But let's pray before we do that. Lord, um, you say if anyone has ears, let them hear. And it's a work of grace that our ears could hear your voice. When we think about forgiveness, this is a, a mighty task for us. One, to think about it in relationship to what you have done. And some of us don't live in very much freedom because we cannot forgive one another. And so today, I pray that you help us see the great forgiveness that you have for us so that we might be more charitable in our forgiveness towards one another. In Jesus' name, amen. In My house, I don't have it prominently displayed, but I have an attractive picture of me when I was in the eighth grade. And upon viewing it, my family made this following wonderful observation. Paul, you look like a 40-year-old woman. Now, no offense to women here who are in their 40s. I'm married to a 40-year-old woman. But that was not meant as a compliment to the little boy who was in the picture, that he looked like a 40-year-old woman. Following this uh, wonderful comment on my physical condition, there followed this second encouraging statement by another member of my family. I mean, Paul, how did you get up out of bed in the morning when you were in the eighth grade? Isn't it great to be in a family that has such a a nurturing, encouraging environment? What a joy it is for me to be in that kind of family. And so I wondered to myself as I looked at this not prominently displayed picture of a 14-year-old boy who did resemble, I had to admit, a 40-year-old woman. 
how did someone get out of bed who looked like this in middle school and move forward into that middle school environment? Most people don't think of middle school being a particularly encouraging environment. If you're 14 and look like a 40 year old female, that would just be, you know, open season for all kinds of wonderful, encouraging remarks. And so as I thought about that, the answer was this. I was absolutely certain of the love of the person who meant the most to me. I was able to get out of bed and move forward to be motivated to move forward in a discouraging environment because I was absolutely certain of the love of the person who meant the most to me. And because I was receiving that love, it just didn't matter what was happening on the outside in the same way. I didn't have a need for that kind of appreciation and love coming back because I was getting it at home. And that was my mother. She was pouring her unconditional love into me. So when I went out to embrace the world, I actually loved middle school. And it wasn't because of the environment of middle school. It was because of the environment of my home. That was the motive. That was the base of me moving forward in my life. So I want us to take a look about a look at our motive for forgiveness. Next week, we'll talk about some more practical pieces of this. But this week, we're going to say, what's the base of operation for your ability to forgive other people? What's your motive? What well are you drawing from in order to forgive one another? And I'm going to suggest only a heart that knows its own desperate condition. Only a heart that knows its own desperate condition and has experienced the unconditional love of Christ is able then to genuinely forgive other people. I want to look at three things. One, I want to examine Paul's motive out of 2 Corinthians 5. That's written, I believe, in your sermon notes. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Um, I want us to look at a word that I skipped over a couple of weeks. I want to look at that motive. And then I just want to look at two pictures. One picture from Matthew 18 and another picture from 2 Samuel. So 2 Corinthians 5. 14, Paul is talking about his motive to move through and spread the gospel. Let's just turn to that. I thought that was written down, but it's not. So 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, who, who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is really talking about how he moves through the culture in very difficult circumstances, what motivates him, what compels him to go forward. What controls Paul? You remember in Acts chapter uh, 14, Paul is moving around Asia Minor and he comes to this little town called Lystra. This is where Timothy lived. 
And in Lystra, he's sharing the gospel. Some people come from surrounding communities, stone Paul and drag him outside the city gate and leave him for dead. Acts chapter 14, verse 20. So in this very stunning verse, what happens? Paul is laying outside the gate. The people think he's either dead or nearly dead. And I think in just a remarkable little phrase, this is what it says. It says, Paul, some disciples came out. Paul got up. And what did he do? He walked back inside the city. I mean, that is a difficult thing to do, to have been stoned by the people inside the city to be dragged outside, and then to get up and just walk away would be the natural thing to do. Maybe to spit on them or something, or to shake the dust off. But Paul is controlled or compelled by the love of Christ, and so he moves back in to the city. I'm just imagining what kind of impact that must have had on Timothy. Timothy, who got stuck in Ephesus. And had to minister in a very difficult place. What compelled Timothy? Well, the same thing I believe that compels or controls the Apostle Paul. And that's the love of Christ. You'll notice it says controls or compels. And in the Greek, that has two different meanings, which I think are helpful for us. What controls? What compels Paul? The one definition is it means to hold together or to be pressed in on every side. So Paul is pressed in on every side by the love of Christ. This is the the word pressed in is the word that we that's used when uh, Jesus is walking amongst the crowd. And remember, the bleeding woman touches his robe and he turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples say, look, you're pressed in on every side. How could you possibly know who touched you or that somebody touched you? Everybody's touching you. And so what's holding Paul together, what's pressing him in on every side is the love of Christ. The other picture I get of this is like a lover. Why does everybody really want the embrace of a lover? And not just a friend. A a good lover. And I hope you've been embraced by, well, maybe I don't hope if you're single, maybe I don't hope for this kind of embrace. But I hope if you're married, you've been had this kind of embrace or you're looking forward to this embrace. Some of you guys are moving your collars a little bit. A lover, when a lover really embraces you, the object or the objective of the lover is to kind of press every side to get all of themselves around you and just Press them into yourselves. They don't want any escape. And that's this concept. The love of Christ, it's like being embraced by a lover. All of the love of Christ has just wrapped itself around you and has embraced you in such an incredible way. Then, because you're controlled by that, you're able to move out into difficult places. So one of the things for Paul, one of the motives for Paul is that he's been embraced by a great lover, the great lover, Christ. He knows that concretely. So he's able to move into situations that are difficult and that require forgiveness. The other part of this is it means to excite or to press on. What 
what controls Paul, what excites Paul, what presses Paul on is the love of Christ. And so we have to deal with difficult situations, particularly when it comes to forgiving other people. You've been wronged. And the Bible calls you, causes you to forgive the person that you've been offended by. If you don't, you live in a prison of some kind of your own making. And so it's very difficult when you've been the person who has been wronged to understand how is it that I move forward. And the only way you can realistically move forward is to understand this full body embrace of the great lover, Christ. It has to compel you forward to forgive. Horatio Spofford is a name that a few of you would be familiar with. He was a wealthy man who came to financial ruin in the late 1800s. He lived in Chicago and there was the great Chicago fire of 1871 and all of his fortune went up in flame. Just uh, a few years later, he sent his wife and four daughters to Europe on a ship. And that ship collided with another ship. And all four of his daughters drowned in the Atlantic Ocean. His wife telegraphed back to say that she alone had been rescued. And so here a man who had wealth both in his family and financial wealth is totally broken. He has no more financial wealth and the four daughters that he had has died And he crosses the Atlantic Ocean to comfort his wife. And when they get to the spot near the accident, the captain of the ship comes to Mr. Spofford and said, this is about the place where your daughters drowned. And that's where he penned the song, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I want you to listen. We're going to sing it at the end of the service. But I want you to listen to the second verse. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What's going to be the controlling factor? What at this moment is going to hold this man together? Isn't that a question we would want to have answered? What's going to hold him together when he's had such a great loss? And this is what he says. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate. And he has shed his own blood for my soul. See, what controls Horatio at that particular point? Is it bitterness? Is it anger? Is it rage? is that he has recognized, I think in a divinely inspired moment, that he has been fully embraced by the great lover. He sees his own inadequacies. He's been embraced by the great lover. And because of that great embrace, he's able to move forward in his life in terrible circumstances. 
When 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 we're gripped by that kind of grace. Then there's a chance for us to truly begin to offer forgiveness to other people. If you're not gripped by that kind of grace, it's going to be very, very difficult. I might say impossible. Well, let's look at two pictures. The first one comes from Matthew 18. And Jesus provides a picture. We're going to talk more about this next week. But I just want to say briefly about the first servant. The king comes. He's ready to have a day of reckoning. So he calls in his servants. And one of them gets called in has a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, this is a difficult thing about money and exchanging it from one time to another. It's very difficult to know exactly what the amount would be. But one talent generally was thought of as about a year's wage. And maybe a talent and a half for a year. So let's just say the average wage was $30,000. And if you were 10,000 talents in debt, you know how much that would be? Most of you are going, no, I, you know, I can't think like that this early in the morning. It's $300 billion. It, it's an amount so large, it's impossible for this person to have possibly paid it back. The second thing I want to note is that this was probably no ordinary servant. When we think of servant, you think of some sort of household butler or or maid or gardener. A maid or a gardener doesn't have access to $300 billion. This is somebody who's governing large portions of the king's kingdom. And probably, in order to waste $300 billion, he's been greedy and self-centered. He's been working against the king. And the other thing I want us to notice is about the servant's plea. He comes to his master and he says, please have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. I want you to just notice this. He asked the king to deal with him according to his plea and according to his ability to pay it back. And the king does not respond to his plea or his ability to pay it back. The king knows he has no ability to pay it back. It's impossible. The debt is too large. And let's look at the king's response in verse 27. The king, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him, forgave him the debt. The word pity is a word that we talked about maybe a few months ago. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a much better word in the Greek than it is in the English. The Greek word is splachnizomai. Remember me saying that a few times? Some of you say, yeah, I think you said it too many times, that sermon, Paul. Splognizomai, I just like that. It, it, it required all of your being to say it. And that's what happened. This word pity is kind of a limp, loose word in the English word. But in the Greek, the, the king looked at the servant and splognizomai. It, it comes from the word spleen. It comes from his very inner being. He, he came out to the sermon, I mean, to the servant with his compassion. 
uh, Weston, you can appreciate this, can you not, having had your spleen removed just this week. He, he came from within himself out onto the servant. This is the same word that's used for the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son is coming back and the father sees the son, even though the son has squandered all the wealth and the king or the, the, the father has compassion on the son. He has splotnizomai. He, he comes from within himself. He's not waiting for the, what the boy is going to say. The plea of the boy, the desire of the boy to try to pay back the wealth, that doesn't matter to the father. He knows that's impossible for the son. And out of his own well of compassion, he spills it out or he dumps it out on his son. Or the king dumps it out on the servant. God is dealing with this person not based on the person's passion, but his own compassion. You hear that? God is dealing with the servant based on his own compassion, not on the servant's passion. That's so important and so freeing. This is what happens. You've been a person who gave your life to Christ some years ago. And you've done some bad things and you've got to give your life to Christ again. You said the sinner's prayer once and then, you know, you'd sinned. And so you had to say the sinner's prayer again. And then you know, some more days went by and you found yourself sinning again. So you kind of feel like, when is the sinner's prayer going to take? And you keep saying the sinner's prayer over and over again. Or you keep coming forward hoping that this pastor's prayer is going to do it for me. Do you see what's happening in that? You're basing God's passion for you on your coming forward. Your passion. And he doesn't operate that way. He operates from within himself. He comes from within himself and he spills out his passion and compassion on you. Do you see how freeing that is? That, that now, as we sang in the, in the first hymn, nothing can pluck me from the Father's hand. Not my sin, not Satan, nothing. Because he's operating to me according to his compassion, not according to my passion. My passion goes up and goes down. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so that's how he's operating with us. He's operating out of his passion and compassion for us. The second picture I want us to see comes from 2 Samuel chapter 3. And I think this will just reiterate the same idea that we have a debt that's too big to possibly pay back. This is a fairly familiar story for most of us. Samuel, I'm sorry, David, comes to the end of his life. And you might see at the top of your uh, chapter, chapter 23, David's last words. And you come to verse 8 in chapter 23, and he's sort of recounting. You might imagine an, an old man now, he's had all these experiences, and he's going back and he's sort of recounting things about his life. And he comes and he says, I've got to tell you about these mighty men. 
And, and he begins to list some of them. And then he just can't just list them. He's got to tell you some great stories about it. If you ever have a grandparent like this? You go and sit with them and they start mentioning something. And then it's like they've got to stop and tell you a story. Maybe it's the same story over and over again. But, but they've got to tell you, make sure you remember this great event that happened in, in their life. And maybe it happened and it, it resulted in your life. And so David here is talking about his mighty men. Verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down. Let's let's go back. Let's start there. Went down, came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When the band of the Philistine was a camp was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. The Philistine had invaded David's own hometown, Bethlehem. David's been displaced. He's up in some stronghold. And then David sort of wanders to himself in this cave. He says this. Oh, that someone would give me a water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He's just sort of musing to himself. If I just had water from my own hometown. And you get this picture in your mind. Three men sort of overhear David. And they say, let's do it. Well, well, the Philistines are there and they've encamped around the whole thing. Who knows how they've protected the well? And these three mighty men consider that and then say, we can do it. And so they come out of the encampment. They wander across this desert region. They get into Bethlehem. It doesn't say how they somebody reaches down, gets the bucket, gets some water for David. They fight their way out. They sneak their way back out. They come across back to this desert region. They climb up into the cave and they say, here, David, here's the water. And what does David do? He pours the water out on the ground. Now, if you were one of the mighty men, wouldn't you just, you realize what we just did? You're pouring out on the ground. But what does David say? Look, far be it from me, verse 17, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went and risked their lives? Do you see what's happening here? These people are completely devoted to David. And he understands he's not worth that kind of devotion. And this is just three of the 37 men. Look in verse 24. These are just some of the names of the rest of them. Ashael, the brother of Joab, he was one of the 30. Shammah of Herod, verse 26. Helizeh of Palatite, the Palatite. Abiezer, the Anatoth. Zalaman, the Ahalite. Imagine trying to pronounce all these words. Heleb, the son of Bana, verse 30, Benaniah of Pirathon, verse 32, Elihaba of the Shalabanite, verse 34, Eliphelet, the son of Ahashbi, verse 35, Hezro of Carmel, verse 37, Zelak, the Ammonite, verse 38, Ira, the Ithraite, Gerub, the Ithraite, verse 39, Uriah, the Hittite. 
Do you know who Uriah the Hittite was married to? Bathsheba. Did you realize that Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men? Who was totally devoted to David. And David saw his wife one day when Uriah was out fighting the war that David should have been in. Had sex with her. Got her pregnant. Tried to get Uriah to come back and sleep with his wife. But because of his honor, he wouldn't. And then you know what David did? He had one of these mighty men go out and be killed. How do you face that when Nathan comes to you? And says, we know what you've done. The person who comes to Nathan said, or the, Nathan, the person who comes to David says, you're the man. You've slept with one of your best friend's wives and then you've had him put to death. How does David move forward after that? How does he get out of bed after that moment? When you've been totally exposed for for the depth of your sin, how is it that you move forward after that? Look at the confession, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Why is God going to have mercy on David? Because David can pay it back? Can David pay it back? David cannot pay this back. It's $300 billion. It's impossible for David to pay it back. But this is what David wants. And this is what you and I want. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, please, God, don't have mercy on me on me because of my compassion. Don't have mercy on me because of my unconditional love. My love isn't unconditional, but please have mercy on me based on your unconditional love. When a person understands the depth of their sinful condition. With that, all of us are in a place that we have a debt we, po- we could not possibly pay back. We recognize the unconditional love of Christ. When we recognize those two things, when we've been gripped by God's grace, then that becomes the motive, that becomes the base of operation for forgiving other people. But if you don't have that base down, you're going to have a difficult time practically learning how to forgive other people. Because you're not going to see yourself right. You have to start understanding the great forgiveness that God has given. If you don't, you're going to be like the servant who goes out and when the person owes you just a few dollars, they've just wronged you a little bit, you're going to choke the person. Like the servant in the parable did. 
the beginning of understanding how to forgive one another is understanding how much you've been forgiven. Now, we forget that. And so we have the table as one of the reminders. We come forward and we're remembering what Christ has done on our behalf. We had a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. And remember Christ's last words on the cross? It is finished. It's an accounting term. It's been paid. It's been paid in full. It's come out of my innermost being. I've responded in love to you. And so when we come forward today and we remember what Christ has done, we're coming remembering God's great compassion. We're not coming to earn something. We're coming to recognize that we could not earn it. And he has paid it all. On the night that he was betrayed. He had compassion. He took the bread and he said, take and eat. This is my body for you. I'm coming out of myself for you. And I'm making a new covenant, a new covenant that I'm keeping for me and for you. A covenant in my blood. So you wouldn't have to spill yours for a debt that you couldn't pay. I've done it all for you. Come, take and eat. I want us just to take a moment to be quiet. I'll ask the elders to come up here. But I want you to understand God's operating out of his own great compassion. He's coming toward you. He's like a father who's running after his son. And in an embarrassing way, he's loving him. He's wrapping his arms around his son. And it says, sort of in an embarrassing way in the prodigal son, he kisses him over and over and over again. Just like a lover might do to the object that he's loving. That's the splachnizomai. That's the compassion of the Lord for us. Lord, did we just take a moment to reflect on the great forgiveness that you have offered us. And we consider that this week before we begin to think about practically how we might forgive one another, solidify that base underneath our feet. So your love is the base of our operating toward one another, not pain, not bitterness, not revenge. Not getting even, but your love. 